This week's episode is brought to you in partnership with Zero Procure. The guys at Zero Procure have walked a mile in the shoes of many of our listeners from the world of hospitality. In fact, they have over 70 years of collective experience of working in the hospitality industry, and that'll probably be me getting into trouble for making them feel old. I really recommend speaking to them to ensure you're working with the right suppliers at the right price. There's zero cost involved. Just click on their link in the show notes or visit their site at zeroprocure.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Nassar Khalil, CEO of Rogue City Hotels and holder of one inspirational story. Coming up on today's show, Nassar makes his play to get invited back on the show. Look, Phil, you are someone I, I admire and regard highly. Phil is phenomenally vague. That's what needed to, to be done to get the thing done that you needed to do. And Nassar encourages us all to get comfortable with this story setup. I'm happy that was the case because it prepared me for what happened next. All that and so much more as Nassar talks us through his incredible story and journey to date. It's difficult to know where to start with Nassar's journey as this is a story that has it all. He's had to overcome adversity that most of us would be grateful to never experience but to have done the things he's done, leading to his current role at the helm of one of the UK's most innovative hotel companies, is testament to his character. There's inspiration and power for us all in his journey. Don't forget to give us a like and a subscribe wherever you consume your podcasts. Enjoy! And a huge hospitality meets. Welcome to Nassar Khalil. Well, thank you, Phil. Um, it's good to be with you today, uh, as always, and thanks for having me. You're very, very welcome. Where are you recording today? I'm talking to you from my office in Nainams, uh, next to the American Embassy and the, uh, the power station that has just been relaunched um, recently. So you've got Apple and others moving into where I am at the moment. So it's a nice part of town with some amazing views. So yes, I'm talking to you from my office today in Battersea. Very good, yeah. It is a part of the world that is on the up and up, it seems. Yes, I mean, when 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 I moved here a number of, number of years ago now, there wasn't much really in terms of developments or offices. Um, we secured this land way back when Battersea was not known for business as much. And we built these offices from scratch and all around us since then, you've had all sorts of developments happening. So if I look outside of my office window on both sides, I could see developments coming up like no one's business. So yes, and obviously since then, the American embassy was also moved to this area. So I was here before and uh, the power station finally got developed with a huge shopping center apartments a hotel it's, and, it's quite um, incredible actually that development yeah. and and to top it all up we've now got a couple of uh, underground stations that are brand new so you can actually now get here not only through the overground but also through a couple of underground stations on the northern line yeah that's a game changer that as well i think in terms of yeah. getting footfall into the area that's right. Yes, and it, it it it's getting better and better as I speak with you now. There are at least five other developments that are going up as we speak, right, all around us. But none of them were there before you, so you basically have, are, are the pioneer of the location. That's that's what we're that's what we're saying. 
<laughs> yes, although yeah, it's a fair comment. Although actually, when we built this office block, we were not thinking that things will happen the way they have. Um, we we thought at some point it will be developed, but it's just been a rapid progression of development. Uh, it's now the place to be, really, um, above and beyond central London. Brilliant. Well, we've spoken about Battersea, but actually, we're here to speak about you. So just. Tell the world what it is that you do. And I have to say, I am grateful that you're going to do this and not me, because when I was looking through your LinkedIn profile, the amount of things it seems that you have your head in is quite astounding. So I'm quite ex- excited to to understand, I suppose, how you manage your time in that process. But in any case, yeah, I, I, go go ahead with telling us who you are and where you are and what you do. Yeah, well, thank you. I'll try and keep it uh, as best I can and as succinct as I can because I wouldn't want to bore any of your listeners uh, today. I'm Nasa Khalil, as you've introduced me. I'm the chief executive of Rogue City Hotels. I also sit on a number of hotel boards and a a number of other uh, boards, including boards of developers and the like, where I either sit as as an executive or non-executive director. And above and beyond my own business, of which I'm the chief executive, I try and help a number of other businesses through my consultancy company, which employs in the region of uh, about 50 people, advising hoteliers across the globe on anything from design to launch to branding to operational matters uh, thereafter. And in addition to that, I currently lecture at two colleges. One is the Vatel Institute uh, in Belgium and France, uh, and the other is Stratford College in London, where I visit at least once a month to talk about hospitality and lecture hospitality students on the way forward and basically inspire them to think big because I'm very passionate about the industry that has made me who I am today. So I want to give back to uh, the leaders of tomorrow, as it were, and yeah. I do my best to um, to do that. So, yes, I'm also the director of hospitality and leisure at Henley PLC, which is a, a developer that also owns a hotel within its uh, portfolio. And when you're, you're not busy with all of that, you're, you're making time to record podcasts. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look, Phil, you are someone I, I admire and regard highly. This is not something I would have just said yes to easily. But I think uh, for what you provide and the audience that you've got, if this would inspire one or two people going forward, then I think we would have uh, achieved something. So it's always a pleasure to do podcasts with you in particular. Bless you. I, well, I think we probably just leave the podcast there, to be honest. It's not going to get any <laughs> higher than that for me. So, um, <laughs> no, that's great. I, I really appreciate that. And I absolutely appreciate you making time to, to chat, especially because you and I have spoken before and you've told me a little bit about your, your journey. And I think if, if anybody walks away from hearing your story and is not inspired, then I don't know what would inspire people, to be honest. So I, I was really excited when you said yes to to come on and have this chat uh, and it's probably enough from me really on that front and I, I think the question that I always kind of open with everyone is how did you get into hospitality in the first place but I, I think with you there might be a backstory that we have to fill in ahead of that 
but uh, I'll let you be the the architect of of that. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, I'll do my best to kind of go as far back as I can. Well, you know, sometimes things do just happen. They are not preempted. They are not manufactured. And when I say sometimes, one of those instances is myself, and therefore I fit into that category. Uh, you know, I came to the UK when I was quite young to study here as a student. I came from a, a fairly well-to-do family. Um, we were not extremely rich, but um, my parents were very hard-working people, and they were determined to ensure that um, I get good education and nowhere better than to get me to the UK. So when I came here to study, obviously I had to go through all of the challenges of being here on my own uh, without really much in terms of relatives or support. Um, so I went straight to a boarding school at a very young age, uh, a Christian boarding school, a convent for that matter in Lewisham. So it was um, it was tough at times, but um, I was very fortunate to be able to go in there and make friends, as it were. Um, we had open dorms those days, um, and so you have to share everything with your peers and uh, and, and and fellow students. And although, you know, I looked different, I was welcomed by my, you know, colleagues or student colleagues, I should say, and I never really had any issues fitting in. Uh, I was welcome and it basically uh, helped make me who I am today because when you get into that environment uh, and you are new into the country, you are new into the education system, you are fairly young, your parents are far away, you have to make do with what you have. Obviously, bless my parents, they were quite worried as to whether I would settle in or not, but I, I managed to. Now, because I do not have much in the lines of people to visit or relatives to see at weekends, even when the boarding school would allow some of my friends to leave for certain weekends to see their relatives uh, or parents. I actually tend to stay in the campus studying, doing something in the library, you know, right. doing doing assignments and the like. So that meant that for some of my friends who were leaving, I was able to help them with their homework and, and, and any other thing that they need to prepare for, making me a very popular friend indeed. And I used to get gifts on their way back from their parents, you know, just to thank me for doing stuff for them because I had the time and I was staying behind. And yes, I was very fortunate to have a very good education in that regard. Is this the, the first, was this, a, 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 I suppose, the the first time in your life where you'd because you're putting yourself into a, a situation like that you're putting yourself into a vulnerable position I suppose because you don't know anyone you don't really know the culture you don't know whether you'll be welcomed in which you you were is this the first time that you kind of thought well I can hard work is going to get me to where I want to get to uh, I mean, at that stage, probably not. At that stage, it, it was more about fitting in and more about really putting my head down and more about making my parents proud and more about trying to be, striving to be independent away from 
you know the the, the cotton wool that is provided by my parents so yeah. I, I wasn't kind of wrapped around any protection anymore i even though i was young it was more a question of well there you are uh, we believe in you no matter your age you're going to do well and just please don't prove us wrong um even though it's unspoken that's how it felt and i just had to put my head down but from a young age i was determined to do well and i just had it in me i was quite competitive i didn't want to miss out even when i was not feeling well i would force myself to go to classes so that no one else would learn something that i would know about and miss out when it comes to exams or tests so i was always pushing myself and i think that's just something i had in me right that's not something that you felt you, you you've learned as it were or it just you just had this internal drive uh, that's right yeah at that, at that age anyway um yeah. i had that because i still had the comfort of if things don't work out my parents are successful business people i've always had the you know the option of going back and joining them in their business so at that particular point i didn't feel you know endangered in any way that my only my only plan is to to succeed in terms of education but mm. that being said like you said i had that drive in me and i wasn't going to accept option b i always wanted to do and succeed in my own right so that gave me quite a push to keep going so yeah. that was that was obviously a secondary education you know i just kept pushing myself through high school and was coming up with amazing grades which were not because i was a genius or anything like that it was purely because i had a lot of time my books were my friends mainly at weekends i would always study love reading and that took me to you know to a level that probably my friends couldn't get to because they were maybe not putting as much time as i was in my studies yeah that old um what's the saying success is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration or something like that the, the it's the hard work ethic that gets you uh, beyond possibly where you think you can get yourself that's right and uh, that's exactly it. i you know i don't believe in luck i think you make your own luck i'm not saying it doesn't exist but i certainly have not find myself in a situation where it's i've been lucky it's all about grafting hard work all the way through yeah. and 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 i'm i'm happy that was the case because it prepared me for what happened next yeah well that leads us nicely on then to to the the next stage of that that story what what did happen next so yeah i mean i i uh, was studying i was having the support i needed from my parents at this point they had a very successful export and import business in africa uh they were they were merchants and doing very well and when i finished high school i wanted to get to imperial college to do business because obviously i've come from a business background with my parents so it was the natural thing to do to go and study business and probably end up in the stock market stocks and shares and whatever else you might do when you get a business degree but all i knew at the time was i wanted to go into serious business and and make my way in life so obviously i was fortunate because of the good grades and the sort of grades i achieved at gcses and and a levels so i 
obviously applied for Imperial College and had to take the necessary entry exams those days to get in. And yes, so I got in there. And at the time, I was very, very happy that so far I'd achieved what I wanted to achieve. And my parents were quite, quite proud of me uh, at that point. And they've always been, but I think they were exceptionally proud because getting into Imperial College wasn't a mean task even those days. So right. uh, really, really happy to get in there. So um, uh, cut a long story short, as soon as I started my first year at Imperial, you know, I was communicating with my parents constantly or regularly, I should say. When I spoke to my mother, I still recall a week before um, the incident I'm about to explain when she was very excited to pass by London to see me and my my dad, who was retiring at the time, wrapping up the business because they've worked very hard. They've done enough and they, they wanted to start enjoying life. Then I spoke with on the Sunday and then on the Thursday, just after lectures, I got a call from my older brother who asked me to um, to go and see him. He was in London at the time. And I was a bit confused as to why he wanted to see me because he was only here for three days just by coincidence. He said, just take a taxi and come and see me. Now, at that point, I'm thinking, what could happen? Why does he want to see me? I said to him, I'm tired. I've just finished lectures for the day. He said, no, 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 just please come. Come, take a black cab and come to me. So, of course, that's what I did. And I was thinking on the way to him, you know, what could be the case here? I arrived, he was waiting for me outside of his apartment and he just hugged me and said, you know, uh, dad is pretty much dead. So I looked at him and said, what, what, what are you talking about? Uh, he said, yes, um, our dad is dead. So I thought, what? And before I could really absorb the news, he basically said, with mom. So you can just imagine at that point, uh, what was going through my head, not only one, but now two, and I just couldn't make sense of what was happening. Yeah. How old were um, you at this point, Nasser? Uh, I would have been about 17, almost getting to 18, 17, right. 17 and two quarters, maybe. Um, well, just before my 18th birthday, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it was um, it was quite a shock. Now, it took me about an hour to absorb the news I've just been told by my older brother. Um, but when I started to receive phone calls or people coming, then I realized this is real. Now, I've just spoken with them the Sunday before, so it was still not realistic in the sense that I was still daydreaming. But I then started to find out what has happened, that, you know, they go attacked, the country had a coup and you have a, a you know, a faction of the, uh, the the army that became rebels and uh, went to the uh, capital and went for the wealthy people. And my parents being one of those people, they went to their compound, um, attacked all of their security, you know, gain access to the compound, their house, and then asked them to give up everything that they have, which they did happily because they were not going to, they were not young anymore to have a fight or an argument. They yeah. they were asked to open their safe, give the keys for their cars and whatever else they had, which they said yes to. 
whilst these people took everything they could, they just opened fire and basically shot both my parents in the process who almost instantly were both murdered at the same time. So we obviously had to arrange a helicopter to pick up their remains uh, from where they were killed in their compound and, and start making arrangements. At that time, the country was lawless, so it was very difficult trying to make arrangement those days. And for a 17-year-old, as it were, it was with my studies to boot and everything else, it was very difficult to um, to make sense of it all, but sense we have to make um, because there was no time for anything else. So, yeah, that then meant that I had to do whatever I have to do at the time to get my parents buried along with my brother. And um, that's what we did and went back into education. But at this point, it dawned on me that there is no uh, no plan B anymore. My parents that I relied on are gone. Yeah, I know nothing about their holdings in Africa. I wasn't really plugged into that. I was a youngster. No one knows who's taken over whatever they had. So it was pretty... It was pretty tough at the time. I can only imagine. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's one thing to, you know, have to contemplate a life going forward at quite a young age without your your parents who've been your your bedrock. But it's also then the next realization that you've right. It's on me now. Like there, there's no one else in this game of life that I can rely on uh, apart from myself. That's correct. And it was a, a huge wake-up call because until now I've been insulated to the extent that whatever I want, they got me a student apartment for myself. They were sponsoring my education. Uh, I could just pick up the phone and ask for more support. I would get it. And overnight, everything froze. So I had to downgrade from my student apartment to a hostel I had to let go of all of my usual comforts because no money at that point was coming in anymore. So I had to pretty much find a way to survive from being living a comfortable life to going into survival mode because whatever happened, I was determined to finish my degree uh, because that's what my parents would have wanted for me. And I wasn't going to give up, even if it meant that I was going to go hungry I was going to do whatever I needed to do, find whatever means possible, do a part-time job, do whatever I needed to do. And that's what I did, basically, to survive for a number of years until I realized my degree, which was a very emotional event because, um, you know, my parents were not there to hug me and congratulate me at the end of that education journey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... Wow, I mean, it, it, you know, there's no other word really to 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 sum it up. Um, but I suppose the the when something like that happens to you, you kind of you have to do whatever it takes, right, to to move on. Otherwise, what what are, what's the choice? Exactly, and you know, I I like to to think what I did was kind of was kind of unique, but it it isn't. I think the the the, the human you know, instinct kind of kicks in. And when you find yourself in a situation where all of a sudden all of the pillars that you rely on for support are no longer there, 
you have got to find a way to suspend yourself and stay where you are without those pillars. And that's what I did. Um, can, I, can I pretend it was easy? No, it was pretty tough. There were days when I went hungry. There were days when I survived on a tin of sardines. There were days when I had to walk through, because my hostel those days was in Paddington and my university was in South Kensington. So I had to walk through Hyde Park to come to uni. And I did that very often because I just couldn't afford the tube ticket, the train right. ticket to jump on a, a tube line. And these were the days when a tube ticket was no more than a few pence, but I still could not afford it because I had to save money for other bits. So I had to basically walk through the park, even at the dead of winter, where you can't see much in front of you in the mornings. I, you know, I had to embrace that journey because that would save me, you know, a few pounds which I could use to to get dinner or something else. Right. So it was tough, but I I, I guess the, the human resilience meant that I just got on with it because there was no other plan. I, I, I couldn't rely on anyone else at that point. I, I was just going to ask you, actually, was there, were there any moments, because there, there's probably people listening, and including myself, who I'm trying to visualise what my response would have been at that age as well, you know, you like to think that you would do whatever it takes, but you never, <clears throat> excuse me, you never know until you're put into the situation what you're capable of. Were there any points whereby you, you thought, what am I doing? I don't know if this is the right, this is too difficult. I can't do this. I need to look at do it, trying to do something else. Absolutely. And there were points at parts of my time when I would sit in my hostel room, which hardly had any window, but actually a door into a patio in the basement, that patio of which people from above, the floors above, would throw cigarette butts and things like that, which I kept cleaning because it's literally the only area of my room that I had to fresh air and things like that. When mm -hmm. I, I thought to myself, you know, sitting in my bed, eating my tin of sardines or tuna or whatever it was it was half a slice of pizza and and just thinking for how long can i do that and what about if i run out of my weekly money you know what what will happen mm. but actually that in in a kind of ironic way kept me going because i thought look I am determined to get to the end of this and whatever happened, I'm going to make something of my life. That's what my parents who I love and missed so much and admire hugely would have wanted me to do. And I was just that little voice at the back of your head that just kept saying, go on, son, go on. You're going to, you're going to make it regardless of the hardship right now. You yeah. will, you will make it. And, and the same thing, Phil, when I was, um, when I was walking through the park to come to uni, sometimes alone with no one else there, I used to just contemplate on my way, the silence, everything else, just think about, you know, when would that time come when I would own a house or when I would have a family or when I would, you know, stand on my own two feet and not having to worry anymore about where the next payment would come from to keep me going. So there were many times when those things kind of went through my mind. Yeah. I mean, it's, I suppose it's one of those periods of your life that you, 
maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but you look back on that time now, and maybe at the in the moment you don't appreciate the lessons that it's teaching you, but actually now looking back, it's probably a lot easier to see that actually that what you would have learned through that process, you know, nobody can ever teach you. You have to experience what you experienced and and it probably gave you a set of problem solving skills that you that you I suppose never really even knew that you had within you. Precisely. Uh, I that's absolutely it. And some of it you just realize as as you as you go on. Pretty much you face challenges, you think um, how am I gonna solve this? You know, I need a, a new tub, you know, tube of toothpaste. Where am I gonna get it? And then you find a way and eventually you get it uh, before the current one runs out. And um, that, that's, that's how it was. And yes, I, I, I dug deep into, into places within me, into energies that I didn't think I had. Yeah. But um, they, they, that, again, human resilience just meant that meant I just have to keep going, which I did. And that took me to the end of the degree, uh, which, um, which I, I managed to achieve with, you know, distinction, I must add, just because I was just too driven not to achieve that. Mm. Uh, nothing was going to stop me. Hunger, transport, whatever it was, nothing yeah. was going to stop me from getting there. I was just too tenacious. Uh, as I said, that little voice was just there and I, I wasn't going to let my family down. Yes. Yeah, so as part of achieving my degree, obviously I had to do some placement work, which, uh, as, um, as it happens, I got placement thanks to my university securing it. I got placement uh, at Claridge's in London. Okay. Um, yep. just, just, just when I was getting towards the end of my degree. And that basically was the first experience I had of hotels and hospitality. Right. Now, it's not a bad first experience, I have to say. No, no. <laughs> you know, it just so happens it's Claridge's. It could have been anywhere else. But yeah. Uh, so I went there for, you know, a few months placement to do my thesis. And yeah, uh, it was just a new world for me. Went in there, was under the wing of some well-experienced hoteliers uh, in different departments that gave me a lot of grounding. And the first thing I realized was no two days were the same in hospitality. It was just like every day brought its own excitement and challenges in equal measure. So, you know, if we're not dealing with a huge problem with a leak, we are dealing with a celebrity that is arriving and has requested a sudden, you know, thing to be done in their suite. Yeah. Or I am dealing with the championing of investor in people, which was one of my pet projects at Claridge's. So every day was an enjoy, enjoying day for me, if I could put it as such. And in a way that gave me the, um, the bug, if you like, I got injected with the hospitality bug that meant that, yeah, I studied business, not hospitality, but actually uh, hotels are part of business. And I liked what I was experiencing, long hours, long days, you know, dealing with all sorts of characters. But yeah, that opened my, it, it did open my uh, my eyes into hotels. Yeah, do you know that that long hours thing, which obviously gets widely reported uh, around the the industry? I 
experienced the same thing when I was um, growing up in the industry as well, is that, that long hours were part of it. But actually, for me, I was just really enjoying it. So the hours were kind of incidental. Like if you if you had to do a, an 18-hour day, then that's what you did because that's what needed to, to be done to get the thing done that you needed to do. And nobody really asked any questions because people were in roles that they really enjoyed doing. And in my case, it was a little bit different because I was on a cruise ship, so there was nothing really else to do other than work. So, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's the that's another cliche, isn't it? Around find that thing that makes you tick, and it won't ever feel like you're working. Absolutely, and yeah, I never felt the hours. I actually was enjoying every bit of it, and yeah, long days. I mean, I remember some days I was going home at about ten, ten thirty in the evening, waiting for the bus, but actually. It didn't feel like I'd started at eight in the morning. It just because you you have certain things you've got to finish for that day, and some of those things cannot wait. And because you work as a team, and you enjoy the people you work with, then time just flies. And you know, there's nothing better for me than seeing the satisfaction on others, uh, other people's faces, on on others when you've achieved something that robs onto others, whether it be a guest that are arriving and they look at what you've done for them before they arrive and you just see the happiness and satisfaction on their faces and you thought that's definitely worth the time or a colleague that you've worked with so much to help and they, you get to the end of the project you were doing and, it, it, you know, just that feeling is so worth it. Uh, yeah, so I agree with you, absolutely. I think hospitality is how it is it, you've got to be passionate and dedicated to do to do that job and effectively it's a service it's more of a service than really anything else you know you've got to enjoy it, it, it it's not it's not something for everyone but yeah. if you don't mind the hours you you do very well in it yeah i think the hours are also insignificant if you're surrounded by people both you know upwards downwards sideways whatever direction that you just click with and that you know get you and you know, you're all just feel part of the same thing and you're all pulling in the same direction when you've got a, a team like that in place it's a really special place to be absolutely uh and 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 hospitality is all about teams i actually i go further with my own people and i try and create a tribe because um you know Teams, uh, uh, you know, kind of setups that everyone has come to talk about or expect or is familiar with. But I go further to say I actually create tribes within my organization because a team, yes, a team is great and you help each other, you work together. But there are times when, you know, members of that team just don't have that additional kind of thought in them to go that we extra mile, if I could say that for a colleague, was a tribe, the entire survival of that tribe is based on everyone working together to achieve a certain outcome, a certain goal. Um, because sometimes with teams, they work in silos and they just look after their corners. Yeah. But in a, with a tribe, if you were to survive, you survive together. If you were to fail, you fail together. So that is the, the sort of ethos and culture I try and create within my organization. Fantastic. Yeah, I really like that. And I think it, it's, uh, it's probably a testament as well to 
what Rogue City stands for, which I think we'll come on to as in the fullness of the of the journey uh, as well, is that you're trying to do things a little bit differently. So we'll 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 get to that in in good time. Absolutely. So basically, by getting that kind of experience, I was told by our general manager at the time, look, Nasa, you've done very well here. When you go back to get your degree, when you are all done, let me know. And I've got a job for you because you've just been exceptional in what you've done. So that was kind of a pleasant surprise for me thinking, oh, wow, okay. Actually, I don't have to worry too much when I finish my degree. If I don't want to get into the stock market or shares, I could actually work in hotels and I've just been offered a job. So, of course, when I got my degree, I thought, this is, you know, I love hotels and this is something I could do. So I went to, uh, you know, to, uh, to Claridge's to try and get in touch with my general manager at the time. This is some eight months after my placement, just under a year. But he had moved on. He had unfortunately right. left. So obviously that promise that was made to me at the time, which I took for granted, was no longer uh, a reality because the new guys there probably wasn't really familiar with me or whatever it was. And I wasn't going to rely on him to to upheld the uh, promise of, of, of his predecessors. So um, I thought, what do I do now? Then do I take a gap here? Do I do something else? Do I pursue business in the stock market but actually i decided to apply for hotel jobs and i got my first break at hilton olympia where the general manager uh, rather not general manager the front of house manager at the time was going back to new zealand so there was an opening for a, a front of house manager at the time and hilton olympia i'm not sure if you're familiar but yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's what we refer to uh, in the industry as a factory hotel. Um, <laughs> almost, um, it's almost a thousand keys. And basically between concierge and reception, you are managing uh, a workforce the size of a, an entire payroll of a small hotel. So you have 25 people in reception and another 20 to 30 people in concierge. So it's almost the size of an entire workforce in a smaller hotel. Mm. And being fresh from university, being thrown into the deep end to manage two departments there that were not properly managed, everyone was doing their thing. It was really a, an epic challenge for me. But as you know, all through my journey so far, I've kind of just grafted, relished the challenges that I faced and this wasn't going to phase me. Um, so I, I embraced the opportunity and in the process had to restructure the entire department from scratch, basically. I had to let some people go. Um, some people had to leave because they wouldn't, you know, comply with the uh, strict new way of doing things going forward, which was a more structured, a more accountable way of doing things you know increasing the service levels providing guests with what they've come to expect at a hilton it was just becoming too detached from hilton principles and so on so of course i had to learn those principles very quickly and you know within months the 
department was a completely different department to what I took on or when I took took it over what it was like and uh, what had spread within Hilton that I was this young chap who's just come in and um, he's really done a few things that no one thought were achievable at the time and of course within cluster management and within regional management I was then getting noticed and basically that led me to my first general manager's role within Hilton which was at Hilton Kensington. It it had just gone through a refurb and they wanted um, a general manager to take it on and what I've achieved at Hilton Olympia meant that I was naturally the one that the regional manager or GM was going to um, was going to appoint. But they also kindly agreed to pay for me to do, because at that time I always wanted to do an additional degree in hospitality because you've got to remember my degree was purely in business. Yeah. So I wanted to add something in hospitality. So thanks to Hilton, they, um, those days they agreed for me to do that additional degree that I wanted to do whilst managing Hilton Kensington. And obviously that's where my general management journey began in earnest. And the rest is history really, um, Phil, because that took me from there. I then got headhunted a few years later to join Nico Hotels, which is uh, a fine company owned by Japan Airlines, Jiao. And very quickly, I became the head of global standards. And my job was to ensure that whether you call Nico Dusseldorf or at the time, Nico London, which was the Moncam Hotel in Mabulaj, uh, the standards are exactly the same wherever you go. Consistency, standard of service, everything is the way you would expect it to be. And when you work with Japanese people, there was no room for any kind of complacency or errors or everything needed to be precise. Part of that meant I had to work in Japan for six months to get all of the grounding that I needed to ensure that I could deploy the vision and standards the way they were expecting them to be, you know, from white gloves to checking corners to ensuring that the right ties is used on the right day of the week. You've got ties for odd days and ties for even days, that sort of thing. So um, the person I was shadowing at the landmark tower in Yokohama uh, actually was quite a senior member of Nico. But every time I would go with him to a meeting, if we were passing through a lobby or any kind of space within the hotel, got to remember this hotel is in a tower that was spanning about 50 stories and more. We would stop regardless to basically fix whatever it is that he's noticed that wasn't right, whether a lampshade was a bit, you know, uh, skewed or he's just noticed some bit of draping or, or curtains that are not aligned. We would stop to fix that. He had his white gloves, he had his leveling ruler, he had everything to make sure everything is just as precise as it can be. You had to send people home if they don't know what day it was of the week or what date it was of the month. So uh, obviously that gave me a lot of insight into attention to detail, into high standards, into not accepting second best. And yeah, 
that then took me into different realms of standards. I ended up joining the hospitality, uh, sorry, the boutique trend in, in, in London, uh, which saw the Sandersons, the Hempel and the likes, which were a new breed of hotels that were coming up. And people just wanted the best in the industry to have those hotels launched. And yeah, um, that took me to a different level of involvement into hotels. I had to get involved with funding. I had to get involved with business planning, not just manage the hotel. I had to get involved with project management, design, until I then met with the owners of what is now called the Resident Hotel, uh, Resident Hotel Group. But those days when we started, it was called Base to Stay Hotels. Okay. Um, it then, it's gone through a few rebrands. It then was then known as Nadla Hotels, and then it became um, the Resident Group now. Now, when I go headhunted for that, I'd won a number of awards in the kind of boutique hotel space. So they were looking for someone really good to join them. They were not hospitality people, Western Heritable, the uh, hedge fund or private equity firm, I should say, that owns that business or majority of the shares of that business is actually uh, a property company in, in, uh, in central London. So they hadn't done hotels. When, when, when I was approached, they had an idea of doing some sort of high-end student accommodation to diversify that portfolio of office office development. But by the time I finished my discussion with them within two or three presentations, at this point, I'm already looking at or looking after, I should say, a cluster of boutique hotels in London. So when they approached me with the first one, I thought, well, if it's going to be student accommodation, I wasn't really that interested because I was at the height of my career. I wasn't going to go into... Yeah, yeah even with the offer of shares and whatever it was. But I came up with a concept that satisfied what they wanted to do because they were not really that keen on F&B and they didn't want to have a lot of restaurants and bars in their hotels. They just want to focus on the common commodity, which is the bedroom, and make it as good as it can be. So I went back and devised some sort of concept that satisfied what they wanted but also we would effectively end up with a hotel company rather than some sort of student accommodation business yeah having presented to them alongside with a few other shareholders that were quite successful barristers and the like they you know Sajon McTaggart who was the uh, chairman at the time of Western Heritage shook my hand and said look uh, welcome on board you know will become partners and let's let's see this journey through and obviously that started my journey with base to stay hotels which then became nadla after i sold out at the end of 2011 it was my baby it was hard to let go it was something i'd worked very hard to establish but go i did i had an opportunity to uh, move on to work for the royal family of qatar well, that's Very, a, a, um, quite a topical uh, yes. <laughs> place to, to discuss. But. I know, very timely. I'm not sure whether this is a good thing or bad thing, yeah. but you've known, you've known me as being frank, so I, I have to be, and we're not going to leave anything out of this. This is actually 
the first detailed interview I've ever done on myself. So I might as well give you <laughs> give you the full um uh the full story. So you know, um I got approached by a, a very well known company in the UK um that said that um there is a, a huge hotel being developed in, in Doha in Qatar to to kind of rival the uh, the likes of the Burj Al Arab in Dubai because Qatar uh, as everyone now knows, wants to be on the map. It's a small uh, country, but they want to heat above their weight and they want to make sure that they are well known. Uh, and they've been blessed with a lot of gas and oil. So they've got disposable money that they could use and achieve whatever they wanted to achieve. So the company that approached me is not a recruitment company, it's an advisory firm that came to me and said, you know, these guys want the best in the business to go and launch their seven-star property downtown Doha because this is owned by the Qatari government and it basically is going to be their flagship destination property for heads of states, for, you know, delegates of the United Nations, for Qatar Foundation visitors, for all sorts of dignitaries that would be coming to Qatar from time to time and I was to go as the chief operating officer. Obviously, at the time, I had to think very carefully as to whether it's a good kind of direction for me to take in a country I've not operated in before, knew very little about. But just as with every other challenge we've, so we've talked about, I decided that it's now or never, really. So yeah. I Plus, it sounds like a, a really, really interesting project. It was. It absolutely was. It was in the final stages of being built. I had not much input with regards to the design of it because that had been going on, but they are getting to the point where they now need uh, a well-renowned operator to come and set up everything that needed to be set up before it get launched. And they couldn't find anyone better, according to them, than myself. And of course, I embraced that opportunity, flew to Qatar, had some very high profile meetings with ministers and the like. And, um, you know, they wanted to remind me of the significance of this property and what it means to, you know, the kingdom of Qatar. And yeah, I took on the, the challenge. I ended up launching a hotel that had a reception on every floor, a butler for every suite, you know, some eight restaurants, uh, five clubs, and it's basically wow. a village within a village within a city. And yeah, uh, that was successfully done, took over from the contractor, did all the snagging, set up all the systems. Uh, by the time I finished with it, I had some 900 employees from 25, 26 different countries. Wow, yeah directly and indirectly reporting to me. So that was a, a one-off project that I really I really cherished a lot and look back and said I probably will never do something like that again. So I was pleased I did it. But that's the thing about the uh, projects like that. Like if you even if you look at Burj Al Arab, people I think it was the, the world's first one billion pound hotel in terms of how much it cost to actually uh, develop and you know and plan and all of the things that they needed to do to get into place to actually bring it to to life. And then I remember at the time somebody said, 
something like that can never be done again because it's just such a, a monumental monetary undertaking. But there's always somebody with more money and big vision, right? So that's like we, somebody's uh, done that before. We're going to do something a bit better. Absolutely. And I'm sure it's not a secret for people like me who are, you know, well-known in the industry and well-connected to tell you that Bujal Arab is actually losing money. It's not making money. Right. Given what was spent in that hotel and what you can reasonably charge, uh, if you go back to the total spend versus what the hotel is making, it is not where it should be. Now, um, the reason why I'm saying that is very simple. These projects are not business ventures per se. They are flagship properties to signify, you know, a, a country or um, the status of a, a particular city. And of course, like you said, when Dubai offered the Bujarara, Qatar had to offer something yeah. even more, even more bigger to say, no, we're not going to be left behind. Qatar needs to be known just as, you know, now they, they are very happy to be known as the first Arab state to host the World Cup. However, that was achieved, that secondary for them. Yeah. It's more like we've achieved this. It's, a, it's basically a one-off where the first people to do it will go in history for that and we will put on good games regardless of everything else around. And, you know, whatever we think of them, good on them, because at least the games are being managed well. Now, I, I, I don't want to get into whether I agree or don't agree with some of what's been said. I think some of it is absolutely factual and, and true. But equally, you know, we have to look at football for now and, and, and try and enjoy the football and then we can visit those questions later but yeah. you know going going back to me uh, after two years of being there two and a half years I wanted to come back home I you know wanted to be back here with family and make sure that you know I developed my own business because again that drive was in me having sold out of uh, Nadla hotels I was in a position to start something of my own and effectively, when I spoke to the royal family there, the prime minister, to say, I, I'm thinking of coming back home to England or the UK, he wasn't buying any of it. He, he thought, <laughs> look, <laughs> he thought, look, NASA, you're doing a great job. You're managing the whole thing for us. Why? You know, you can go back to the UK anytime you want to go. What do you want us to do? You know, we can bring whoever you want us to bring over. I said, you know, it's not really the point. I just felt that I've done my bit and I've launched it successfully. I can put people in charge here and I can advise you from the UK. So anyway, after some pulling and pushing time and again, and I'd made up my mind purely not because of anything. I was really well looked after. I probably, you know, couldn't have asked for better the way I was well looked after. But I had to just come back. I was missing home yeah. uh, after the number of years I was done. I thought my job was done. The place is running well. All departments are well oiled and function like uh, a cog within a machine. So 
I came back and that's when I launched NASA Khalil and Associates, which is uh, my consultancy company. Because I've been well known in the industry, I was head of the West London General Managers Association. I'd done a lot of funding with banks. I was able to leverage those relationships to start working with banking groups, to start working with, you know, other hoteliers that needed support and help in their businesses. And so very quickly, my consultancy went from one person, i.e. me, doing the work to employing a number of people, both in terms of on payroll and some consultants that were assisting me in different projects. And under that consultancy, I'd done a lot of work in Dubai, I'd done a lot of work in other countries in Europe, I'd done a lot of advisory work for banks in the UK and uh, hotel companies in the UK. And so that has been very successful. And whilst I'm doing that and working a lot with charities and everything else, I met with chairman and CEO of Henley PLC, which is um, a developer. And through that relationship, uh, he tempted me to kind of go into a partnership with him to start a hotel business. I was very happy with what I was doing. I wanted to obviously retain that consultancy business, which obviously as a partner in my new business, that doesn't stop me from doing the consultancy work that I do for all of my clients, both abroad and here. And that work continues. But at the same time, I decided to go back into hotel portfolio and that's how I founded Rogue City Hotels. Now, it's, it's my company. It's my business. We are now at our fifth property, many of which are, by the way, under construction. But um, uh, the idea is that I would get to some 20, 25 properties in the next 10 years. That's my goal. And Henley, as a partner, their job is purely to work with me on the development side. So I would um, identify an opportunity, whether it be it's a car park, a plot, an office block, whatever it is. I will acquire it if it suits my needs. Henley will then be my construction partners, will go in, deliver the conversion in line with what my vision is and what my design brief is. And they will pass it on back to me once it's all developed. And then my team manages it. Yeah. And we've, we've been very aggressive in our acquisition plan. I started this just before COVID, a few years before COVID. So we... Well done. We, yep. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we basically get kind of slowed down a bit during COVID because, um, you know, my lenders were not doing much of lending at the time in yeah. terms of bank funds but um i was probably one of the few to secure funds even during covid so that as soon as the lockdown was was over we could get onto the construction side of the project which we're now doing in addition to the operating hotels that we have uh secured a property in kensington in london we've got almost at the final quarter of refurb works in cambridge and glasgow uh, we have an operating hotel in the Highlands and we're about to start construction in Perth in uh, in Scotland when we finish with Glasgow. And we're working on a couple of opportunities in both Edinburgh and Oxford. Fantastic. Yeah. And Perth is my old stomping ground. That's where I was born and bred. And actually what you're doing there 
I don't really remember too much. I was only a child when I was uh, in Perth. But um, it sounds like you've identified, and that's just one market, you've identified an opportunity in a, a, a place that needs that opportunity. Yeah, that's right. We've uh, we've acquired the old council offices at the, the High Street, uh, 125 High Street, and that's going to be the first five-star hotel in the city of Perth. So literally so far, and I, I appreciate you were young when you were there, you probably maybe don't know all the developments that have taken place since. But even now, although Perth has seen a lot of regeneration, they've not managed to to create high-end hotels there. So you still have the likes of Premier Inn, Travel Lodge, and um, obviously the city needs a lot of new companies to come in, a lot of new investment, private investment. And for that to happen, people need quality accommodation of where they would stay, whether it be for a few nights or for a few weeks. And what we are trying to provide in Perth is the first high-end boutique hotel that would cater for delegates that will come to the city that wouldn't necessarily want to stay in a travel lodge or premier inn. Yeah. And what I really love about your your acquisition model as well is that it you're, you're not just taking on old hotels and you know re revamping them and going again i'm sure that might fit part of your model but the ones that you've got in in motion at the moment they're interesting buildings and they've got you know their own history and their own story that that's away from actually hospitality but actually you can totally bring into the world of of hospitality that's right and that's really important for me i mean you you know every soulless hotel out there would would just be a hotel, but I want my hotels to be not just another soulless building in a in a street somewhere in a city. I want the hotel to have something to give above and beyond a bed and above and beyond you know what you've come to expect in a standard hotel. And part of that is to really go through a very scrupulous identification process of which buildings work for my concept, which buildings will tell their own story, how we can merge the history of the building with what we are proposing in terms of service, in terms of guest journey, in terms of experience. And I think you're absolutely right to pick that up. I mean, in each of my buildings, even the one in Kensington in London, has a history behind it. It has a story to tell on its own. This is why, for example, all of our hotels come with names that pay tribute to the history of the building. So, for example, the building we bought in Cambridge used to be owned by someone that was regarded as the father of Cambridge, Thomas Hobson who uh, did all of the waterworks in Cambridge, who was one of the first business people. So I'm not sure, you know, you probably are familiar with the phrase Hobson's Choice. Hobson's Choice came from that building, literally. So Thomas Hobson, who built that building, and it's gone through a few lives since. It was then a police station and a fire station and, you know... um, and we're celebrating all of that. You had the constable's office, which is now going to be, you know, an amazing meeting space with paneling that goes back to the 18th century. So if you're in that room, you'd actually experience what the head of the 
constable's office used to experience wow. and uh, we've kept some of the cells that were to the back and and celebrated those spaces but yeah going back very briefly to hobson's choice so thomas hobson one of his businesses at the time was renting out horses for uh, people those days there were no cars so if you want to move some sort of load that you've got, you would come and hire a horse with a carriage to pull your load from one end to the other. And Thomas Hobson was very clear that you cannot choose which horse you would get from that building. You would come in to hire a horse and the one that is most rested is the horse that you would get. So it's Hobson's choice, meaning that it's a choice but not a choice. Ah. You literally have to take the horse that they would give you. You cannot say, I want that brown one because it's a bit higher or it looks more well-groomed. It's the one you get, the one that you get when you go to hire a horse. So, you know, that's that's the choice. So, of course, as a result of that, we are actually calling our boutique hotel up the the Hobson. Hobson coming from Thomas Hobson, obviously. And we just want to make sure the history of the building it's well kept, well maintained. And if you go in there and just see from stained glass windows to kind of the, the very special details in the ceilings that we've managed to rescue and secure, it will give you a lot about the building. The same goes for Glasgow. Obviously, the same would go for Perth. Same would go for London. And Donalistar Hotel in the Highlands uh, used to be a hunting lodge that we've kept that way, even though we've spent a few million pounds to make it as five stars it can be. Fantastic. Yeah, it's, um, we've only known each other a very short time in the grand scheme of things. But I, I think what you guys are doing is really, really interesting. And I, uh, I, I, for one, absolutely wish you all the very best with the project. It sounds like you have a, a very aggressive future ahead of you. And I mean that in, the, in a nice way, not a, a, an aggressive horrible way and I'll, I'll definitely be keeping a, a, a very close eye on on what what happens next phil that's very very kind i mean uh, having the support of people like you um who are known in the industry for what you do kind of adds to the impetus that i i i feed from uh the positivity and the um you know the support i get from people like you bless you just it, it it means a lot and you know being the ceo of uh, another startup company i still regard it as a startup even though it's been going on for a few years it can sometimes be a lonely place yeah. and it's always nice to get some good feedback on what you're doing because otherwise you know you are looking at it from your own prism you have to look at these things from what other people think of what you're doing and for me, that's very important. So I hope I haven't done a disservice to bring my journey right up to date to, you know, where where I now sit as the, the CEO of uh, a number of businesses and also, you know, still sitting on the board of a, a few hotel groups and through my consultancy, also advising a number of businesses, both abroad and here, all in the hospitality space and still hopefully continue to find time to do my uh, lectures at the the institutes that I work with to inspire those students as much as I can on a monthly basis. 
uh, when I can find time. And I, I, it's important for me, so I try and, and fit it into my schedule. And, and finally, not forgetting the, the bit I do for charity, which is also very, very important for me. You know, I'm a trustee of a few charities and they, they hold really a very special place in my heart. And above and beyond everything else I do, one of the things that gives me the most satisfaction is giving back to the community and helping others get where I got to so that everyone can make a success of their life. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, um, I, you've hit the nail on the head, right? I mean, any any one of us who are in a, a position of privilege, and I don't mean that in terms of it's been gifted to, but we've worked into a position that allows us the opportunity to give back. I, I think we're we're duty bound to do just that. And we're all responsible to each other to keep each other elevated and to keep each other in a, a place of positivity to, to ensure that everybody can do their best work. I think that's, it's just a, it's a very simple ethos, but if, if more people believed in that, I believe we would get a lot more good work done. Uh, I agree. And I share all of that, Phil, you know, I think you've just summarized it pretty well. I will continue to do what I do and uh, try and make myself accessible as much as possible, whether it be it through, you know, partnerships and and doing my bit to contribute uh, in whatever way I can to support the industry. I'll continue to do that because I'm passionate about this industry and I want it to really succeed in as much as we can succeed, you know, and where we can, we are pushing the government to, you know, appoint a minister for hospitality. We haven't got there yet. As as you know, the government keep changing its colours time and again. <laughs> but um, I think hospitality businesses need a lot of support right now with the uncertainty in the market. So hopefully we'll get somewhere whereby the government will realise at some point through a bit of pressure from different people, myself included, where I can, you know, put influence to ensure that we finally get someone to represent the industry because currently we've just been left on our own, whether it be it on the labor side of things where businesses are just struggling to find people, myself included, you know, I've got so many vacancies and just cannot find the workforce to service those vacancies. And I do not recognize this bit about, you know, just train people because there are no people to train. No one is applying for this yeah. role. So that comment um, the other day really made me realize if I didn't already know that they're totally disconnected from reality, really. I mean, without wanting to be too controversial, but yeah. um, you, you know, and that's that just puts pay to exactly what you've just said around we need a proper seat at the table. We need somebody who really understands the it's one thing to say you know that we there are however many people there are out of work in the uk but it's another thing to get them motivated to actually want to go to work that's where the gap is absolutely and i tell you for certain uh through kind of the work that i do that if something isn't done and quick you know i fear that some of our colleagues who are in the same business as I am uh, would not survive just because, you know, this is this is just coming from both ends. So you've yeah. got the cost of living, you've got the inflation, you know, taking their margins away. And on top of that, they cannot have their hotels fully occupied because they just don't have 
the resources that they need to service those guests. And it's the perfect storm. Uh, I think currently what the government is doing is closing its eyes into the problem and thinking that, well, in time, if we just say the same thing again and again and we believe in what we are saying, then the problem would resolve itself. It ain't, it ain't going to resolve itself. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, unless something happens, then I cannot see how we would get out of this vicious circle. If it's not prices going up, it's guess not willing to spend what you need them to spend to come and stay in your hotel because you need to raise those revenues to to service the inflation and at the same time you don't even have the people that you need to get all of that revenue you need so it just it's like a washing machine when you look at one area then the next area kind of comes up yeah so i i'll continue to fight not just for myself but for everyone in the industry to find a way to get the government to understand we're not asking for too much we're asking for like you said a seat on the table so that we can be represented and can be heard because we play a significant role in the economy of this country a and monumental the, you know, role yeah I, 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 and that's the that's the thing that i never i haven't been able to correlate it in my head how they can be so dismissive when it has such a positive impact but um but that's yeah that's right sorry I, I know i know we've gone above <laughs> and beyond but i, I thought I, i'm so passionate about these things i thought at every opportunity i just need to remind listeners that we need all the help we can get from government yeah and you know and i think that beyond that as well then it's just down to us as businesses that stand alone and together to ensure that we're creating environments that are great for people to come work i think you know as long as we continue to to do that then we will win eventually but we need we need a leg up to help us get more people to come in and work that's right yeah no i agree i agree i think you and i are exactly on the same page great stuff i'm eminently conscious of time but i no massively problem. appreciate you being so open with your your story today and i, I really really can't thank you enough for for that uh, the the vulnerability of your story and uh, and how an important part that played in in who you've become today final question for you before i let you get on your way what would be your your top three reasons for somebody to come and join hospitality as a career uh i think i touched on this a bit earlier but i'll do that again part of the reason why i agreed to tell my story is to inspire people to to, to say that you know, if I can get there, anyone can get there. It's just hard work. But actually, in answer to your question, three reasons for hospitality to me, very simply, the satisfaction you get for the work you do, it really is a rewarding job. When you do a good job, you instantly get gratification from the satisfaction you get from other people. You do not need to have a special qualification to climb up the ladder in hospitality. You can be anyone and become one of the best managers if the right support and training is given to you. And the final reason for me why you should work in hospitality is because it's a fantastic family that you would always find yourself, you know, a supportive group of people that will never leave you behind if you find yourself in the right company. Um, whatever is the situation, you would always have someone to hold your hand. So when you kind of combine these three things, you really should. And of course, in time, it's also quite rewarding in terms of 
monetary reward, but obviously it's not the first reason people come into hospitality. I think you come in for your passion to make a difference. And um, yeah, I think though for me anyway, I know it's subjective, but for me, those will be some of the best reasons why you should. And when I do my lectures, I always remind people of where they could end up with and how they could become some of the best leaders in the world in their field in hospitality. You don't even need a specific kind of education to get there. As long as you are hardworking, you are, you know, someone who is a grafter and you would pick up things quickly, you make your way very, very, very rapidly. Here, here. Yes, I could not agree with you more. Excellent. Yeah, well, if people want to get a hold of you to learn about you a little bit more or Rogue City or any of the other work that you're doing, what is the, the best method for them to, to reach out to you? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty accessible. Uh, all of my interviews are online. But yeah, roguecityhotels.com is the, uh, the, 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 the website for my portfolio of properties that are coming up. Obviously, they could also reach me through my office at any time here by emailing my office and all of those details are on the website. And, you know, we welcome good talent. We are a company that wants to, you know, welcome people from all sorts of backgrounds and, you know, come and work with us, come and be part of the uh, this growing team. And, you know, whatever we can do, we'll do to support you to get you there. Nothing gives me more satisfaction than, you know, helping people to get to the top of their potential. Fantastic. Well, I, well that's a wonderfully positive way to, to end it. And uh, thank you again for, for your time. It's been an absolute joy to chat to you today. Likewise, Phil. And thanks for having me. And um, yeah, I'll see you sometime soon. Very, very good. Thanks very Take much. Good care. Cheers. Bye now. Bye-bye. And there we have it. I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to get time with people like Nassar. His knowledge and passion for hospitality is just wonderful. And I hope you've taken some inspiration from his journey so far. I'll be back again next week with more stories from hospitality. But until then, thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you next week.